This is the Volleyball Coaching Wizards podcast, covering everything coaching. Motivated and inspired by interviews and conversations with some of the world's great volleyball coaches. To learn more about the project, visit VolleyballCoachingWizards.com. Now here are your hosts, John Foreman and Mark Levijou. Welcome to episode 18 of the podcast. The, the focal point this time is some comments made by Peggy Martin in her interview where she talks about the need to be able to coach players as themselves and not as many versions of you. So coaching their own personality and not trying to make a player play the way you were or be motivated the way you are or were as a player if that was the case. And, and to basically deal with them on their own level and on their own terms. Um, Peggy is one of the most successful, decorated, uh, victorious coaches in U.S. Collegiate Volleyball. Uh, she's got over 1,200 wins to her credit in more than 40 seasons, and primarily in NCAA Division II. She's won more than 20 championships, has dozens of uh, Coach of the Year awards, uh, has been about as successful as you could ever imagine. She actually retired from coaching, uh, but after only a few months realized she couldn't she couldn't take the, the lack of coaching and got right back in, and, and it's been, I think, eight years since that happened. So uh, definitely a woman who's got a lot to say, and uh, this is just a part of it. So um, take this, and, and hopefully it'll motivate you to, to listen uh, more to what Peggy has in her full interview. I think there's, there's lots of the ways that I have changed and understanding that everyone didn't have the background I had and, and everyone is not motivated like to me. I think that once you understand as a coach that these kids are not you and they are not going to play the same way you do, they are not going to be motivated the same way you are or were, uh, then you become a better coach. You know, you understand that you, you were motivated because you love the game and you want to play the game and you're a competitor and you want to compete. They're not you. So you have to find the way to motivate each and every one of them for whatever way that they need to be motivated, which is, which is a challenge in coaching. I guess this particular comment from Peggy struck me as interesting, partly from my experience of working with other coaches who – as much as they would have really liked it to be the case, we're dealing with players who were not as good a, a player as they themselves were when, when they were younger or were of a different style, mm -hmm. um, perhaps less enthusiastic or less quick or whatever, you know, less emotional, whatever the case may be. And I think even if you weren't necessarily a player or a great player or whatever, and, and there's a whole side discussion on whether great players make good coaches and, and such, that's definitely for another time. But no matter, no matter what as a coach, you're gonna, you have a personality, and your personality is going to be different from your players. Um, and so that's why I, I decided that it made sense to pull this clip because mm -hmm. we're all going to face situations where we have to adapt our coaching to people who don't necessarily see things the same way we do. And, you know, that's one of the challenges. I think it's a, uh, it's a fantastic point. And, uh, when I, I listened to the clip, I 
just thought about the first three years of my coaching career before I, uh, before it was a career and, uh, um, before I figured out a bunch of things. And, um, she kind of implies, uh, and maybe this is a, a fair implication that, that the people who come, who become coaches are perhaps a little bit more motivated by the sport, perhaps love the sport a little bit better, perhaps are a little bit more um, competitive, are definitely more control <laughs> freaks um, <laughs> and have an expectation that all people are, are like them. And um, that, as I said, that really resonated with me because it was a real difficulty when, when I began, when I began working um, or volunteering as a coach that um, the, the players I was coaching were not as competitive as me. And for them, it was a hobby. They went once a week, they played a match, they played, they had one training and um, it took me some time to figure out that their motivations to be there were not the same as mine. Right. Yeah, that's definitely the challenge when you're at, say, like a club level or a low level. Like when I was in England, you know, maybe one of the low level university teams or something along those lines where, yeah, you know, I mean, they're kind of there to play, you know, they're just, it's, it's a fun activity for them. Sometimes it's social uh, more than necessarily about the sport per se. And if you're consider yourself a serious coach, whatever that might happen to mean, you uh, can definitely be frustrating. You know, you you've got one idea in mind, and you know we want to get better, and I need to teach them this stuff, and their you know their motivation is different than yours, and so inevitably it becomes one of those clashes. Um, and and actually, to your point about the control freaks, it, it got me that got me thinking about whether that's changed at all, because for sure. You know, you can look back in time and, and I look back at my own coaching and there was definitely a strong element of I'm going to control this whole thing in one fashion or, not, or another. But I wonder if that's changed over the years um, or at least with, you know, the newer generation, just the way coaching is being taught and encouraged in different ways. But you know, maybe that's that's a side. Well, no, I, I guess we can go into that now. Um, do you do you mean you wonder whether you're as control much of a control freak as you were when you began coaching, or whether coach, people who become coaches now are as big a control freaks as we were when we started? More the latter, because I think personally I am less into the control than I used to be. Uh, at least in terms of what's going on in the gym when I'm training the team, I, I give I give the players a lot more leeway in what we're doing um and you know to be completely honest and blunt when i first started i was a driller like a lot of people of our <laughs> generation and when you're a driller drilling is pretty much all about control you know everything is supposed to be exactly the way it needs to be and if you if you shift your mentality into a much more much more randomly oriented game oriented training you give up part of that control it's a, you know, there's no two ways about it yeah, I, th I think that's a I think that's a great one. I, I think the I will go as far as to say that a lot of drills, the object is to control the group, not to get better. And I think with uh, 
the organization of, of some drills, a lot of blocked type practice, one of the, the attractive things for a lot of coaches is that it's much easier to organize because you have people standing in a line, the, you have only two balls moving at once, uh, you can see everybody um, and it's much easier to, to see and control and, and also give feedback and things like that as well than, uh, than a random practice which has uh, 14, 15 moving parts and you can't predict from one moment to the next. Yeah, very true. Um, <clears throat> I also think in a drill situation, because you're constraining things so much, you're also kind of taking out the personality elements of players. Uh, so it, it is easier to kind of, you know, I guess coach to a level. Uh, it's not necessarily that you're coaching to something different than what you are or trying to coach them to be the way you are. Maybe, maybe you are. Maybe that's the motivation for the drills that you pick. Uh, but at least there's kind of a consistent mentality about the drills, whereas if you're letting people actually play more, then they have a bit more freedom and kind of, kind of express themselves. Now, yes, the coach can go in and certainly put constraints on that, um, whether they want to or not. I mean, it doesn't look like there's too many constraints being put on somebody like Engapeth, but... <laughs> You know, some coaches I know that would completely drive them insane, and other coaches can deal with it. Uh, obviously, T. Lee at this point, you know, can yep. deal with it. And if anybody's going to be the sort of example of I want players who who you know who, who take it like me, then you know somebody like him or Karch or these guys who had a lot of success in their own careers would seem to be the prime candidates for being in that sort of position. But they've obviously learned. Or, or it's just part of their own makeup that, you know, they, they need to have the players play as those players are motivated, not as the coaches motivated. I think, I, to a large degree, maybe this is the difference between um, uh, ex-players becoming coaches and people who are coaches' coaches, because... Um, I would I would suggest that most players are probably a little bit more um, sympathetic to individual variation um, because because they were uh, they they were players they were um, doing things as they wanted to um, but that's purely speculation on my part I have no um, I have nothing to base that on. Well, well, I mean, Vital basically said that he didn't say that explicitly in his interview, but it was very much along those lines of, you know, I, I, I decided to coach completely the opposite way I was coached because I felt constrained and didn't like it. Uh, yeah, yeah. And a couple of other interviewees, uh, Stelio DeRocco, for example, he, he and Vital I asked them both if they felt having been a player was important and um, a top-level player. And they both said yes, they thought that it made a, um, a, an important difference because they were better able to understand players. And perhaps we can interpret that as being a little more flexible. Yeah, potentially so. Yeah, it's not. And, you know, I, and I 
did in, in considering Peggy's comment, I did think back to myself. I didn't have a lengthy playing career in terms of being coached. Yeah, I played a lot. You know, played a lot of doubles, played a lot of grass, played you know pickup volleyball, uh, you know open gym situations. Uh, even when I was on the club team at the University of Rhode Island, we were very rarely actually coached. The captain pretty much ran ran training, so I didn't. I don't have that background in terms of what it felt like to, to have somebody constantly telling me what to do all the time. Um, and I never rated myself as, you know, the best player ever and everybody needs, everybody should play like me or had any sort of success in terms of putting myself in a situation where, you know, be like me, not like you. Um, so maybe that because of that, it just never kind of worked its way into my own thing. For me, it, it's just more, it's kind of like that 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 rec player that you're that or at least the player that treats it like recreation mm -hmm. when you treat it like serious business i've had yeah. we've all had that that sort of conflict so you know that's the mismatch um not so much in terms of personality but in terms of expectations yeah if i think back to when i started coaching i think i can i can say directly that one of my motivations to coach was to get it right because I didn't think any of my coaches had got it got it right, and I wanted to play. I wanted to be involved with better with better volleyball, and my coaches had failed me until that point. <laughs> well, I'll admit, you know, when I started actually learning about the sport, mm -hmm. um, it, it was. There was definitely that element of, hey, how come we didn't learn this? You know, I think the very first coaching-oriented book I read was Ari Selinger's book, Power Volleyball. Yep. And he's talking about the quick offense and all these plays and things. And I'm just going, we didn't even know that this stuff was possible. Uh, well, we were basically playing a brand of volleyball that was from the 50s. <laughs> we're going, wait, oh. wait. Let's <laughs> What happened here? And, and even when I was working with that team, you know, my former team, uh, this was high school, uh, the, yeah. a year or two later, and I was trying to introduce some of this stuff. The coach was like, no, 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 that's, we don't want to waste the time on that. I'm just going, are you kidding me? <laughs> Come on. This is the fun stuff. This is the stuff the players are going to enjoy doing. Uh, I, I sadly was um, uh, probably more along the lines of um, – why that my coaches had never just told the guys in the team the right way to do stuff and that's why they never did it and um now that i'm the coach i can tell them the right way to do it and everything will be <laughs> everything will be right yeah and how did that work out for you uh as i said peggy's um peggy's quote really resonated with me <laughs> <laughs> because I I quickly learned that um, a people don't just do the things that you say automatically just because you say them. Um, so that's the that's the first coaching lesson, mm. uh, and the second lesson is that people are not like you, and they're not uh, in this case. In my case, they weren't as competitive as me. They weren't as motivated as me to be really good at at volleyball or or to absolutely win this game at all costs. And um, and I did a lot of screaming and yelling in that 
period as uh, um, as I tried to get across the what I thought was the required level of of competitiveness of motivation etc cetera, etc cetera. and um, yeah like I said it Peggy's Peggy's thing was really spot on and and uh, once I worked it out that I have to work a little bit differently I have to make some kind of allowances I have to understand the people I'm working with better um, the whole coaching experience became much better for uh, for me and not insignificantly for my players. Now, let me ask you this. Did you ever have kind of that epiphany moment early in your coaching career when you kind of thought back to yourself as a player and how even though the coach told you 50 times, you didn't actually change something or do what they want? And, you, and it just kind of dawned on you why that might have been? Actually, I don't think so, no. Uh, right now, I, I, can't, uh, I can't think of that situation. Because I was always right. So exactly. <laughs> I never, um, when I was a player, I was always right. And I did it because I was right. And uh, when I was a coach, I told people to do it because I was right. So I never had that moment of thinking, of putting myself in the player's shoes in that way. So you were, you were blessed with a, a lack of doubt. I was blessed, I think, with a lack of intelligence, <laughs> and and I, <laughs> I might, uh, I would probably not use the word uh, would blessed either, because um, I think in in most in this coaching is one thing where uh, lack of doubt or lack of intelligence is not really very good. Yeah, probably not. Oh, the the irony of that on the doubt side of things, not the intelligence side of things, is that you get in trouble if you show doubt. You, you should have it, but you can't show it. Oh, no, absolutely not. You're never allowed to show doubt. No. No, you, you have to remain, uh, you have to remain absolutely sure in what you do. Well, and it's, it's like what we were talking about um, in the Neville podcast about the setter where yeah. you, know, you, you, were, you were saying the setter needs to appear to have the answer, mm -hmm. whatever the challenge is. And you, you made the comment that basically the coach is the same. The coach should elicit confidence in the players that he or she has the answer to whatever problem they're facing. Uh, I'm, I'm convinced of that. And I, I don't think you can convince me otherwise. I, I've had conversations with, with people, about this topic and and i've said that um that coaches and players are uh, are always acting in some way shape or form so they're always projecting projecting something that they want others to think or um or that they want others to understand and um the the conversation i had was that uh, people aren't stupid and they can read through your they can read through your acting and uh, to which I said, well, I don't agree. <laughs> well, and to the extent that they can, does it matter? Um, I mean, yeah, there's, there's a point where you're being obviously just fake. And if people pick up on that, then that's bad. But well, that's, you know, that's not really acting, then, is it? <laughs> well, it's, you know, it's, uh, 
I mean, acting is by definition being fake, but, but yeah, there's, there's a sincerity involved to not being fake, I suppose. I, I just know, no, I shouldn't say no, because we're in the realms of things that are unknowable, but, but I'm, I'm certain I've, I've been aware of situations, uh, seen situations. I, the players have told me, for example, of, of, uh, times when they felt that the negative mood of the coach has impacted on performance and mm-hmm. and directly led to poorer performance and losing matches. Yeah. Well, and and I, I've recently had a discussion with um, one of the coaches that I work with here who works with young kids. I think he works with 12s and 14s primarily. And we've talked just about body language and, and coaches' presentation to the players and, and how things can be read. Because, you know, the thing we have to realize as coaches is we're getting looked at all the time. Um, and a lot of times you don't necessarily realize what the kids are or the players are picking up and, and remembering. Yeah. And sometimes it's not always the most, you know, <laughs> a lot of times it's the embarrassing stuff that you'd wish they didn't remember at all. But he was talking about trying to deal with a situation of, you know, trying to, to let kids be okay with making mistakes and, and not being afraid and looking over to the sideline and, you know, and all that. And, and we were talking about how, you know, he needed to be cautious about the body language he used. Not that he was, he was being negative. He was trying to be positive and, you know, encouraging. But, you know, he was, he was trying to, he was basically trying to avoid the situation where, he was looking at the player who made the mistake and, you know, and in doing so making them feel guilty when that wasn't the intention. So he, he had talked about, you know, I, I intentionally don't look at them. So, well, the, the one concern you have there and you have to be careful of is, oh, coach won't look at me because he made a mistake. Yeah. <laughs> That's one of those things. It can go either way. Um, and it's, it's, it's that fine line that we end up walking and, and, Partly, it's a function of you know having to understand the players we've gotten. I, you know, even when I was in Sweden, I was observing a, a coach in the second division, and when the team was doing well, was playing well, he was he was up on the sideline and he was moving around. And he was fairly animated, but if yep. they went into a bit of a slump, you know, next thing I know, he's sitting, and I'm sure he didn't realize what that the difference of that presentation to the players could be. Yeah. No. Okay. We're playing bad, and coach doesn't trust us anymore. He's not. We lost him. Uh, so that's, that's, that's exactly that's exactly correct. Yeah. yeah. Um. And I think my irrefutable argument in favour of uh, acting working is uh, is body language and and studies on body language and how important it is and how people interpret things and you can control body language and mm-hmm. um, there are also studies that that um, mood can follow uh, words mood can follow uh, body language and actions and you can affect not only your own mood but you can affect others mood by by doing, by doing exactly that, and and uh, you you have an obligation to I I think use all the use all the tools, however complicated and complex and um, um, 
difficult and uh, discouraging and all those all those things that make uh, coaches insane. Yeah. Well, I, I can remember when I was at Exeter thinking to myself while I was standing on the sidelines, don't cross your arms or make sure you do this or whatever. And you find yourself thinking about all these, you know, other things beyond what's happening on the court and you go, wait a minute. Okay. Let's get this under control a bit here. Um, um, but the question, the question I wanted to ask you was in terms of the professional players, because we talked about the younger players and the kind of recreational players, but what sort of variation do you see in the motivations of professional players? Um, professional players are people. I know that people um, don't always consider them to be people, but um, any group of people that you want to choose have the range of normal characteristics that people have. Some people are more or less competitive than others. Some are um, more or less hygienic than others. Some are uh, more or less good people. They're exactly the same as any other group of people. They're probably on average physically fitter. Uh, volleyballers are significant, are on average significantly taller than most other uh, populations. But in a in a team, you'll find the same people that you'll find anywhere else. And some people are more competitive than others. And to a to a degree, this it surprises me to this to this day that um, you can become a professional player without being insanely competitive. And uh, but that's that's also just the way it is. And there's a reason that only some people um, are great players, and there are reason why only a few people win over the course of time. That's why you know not everybody wins because. Even in that group of people, i.e. professional volleyballers, there are differences, and uh, and they come out at the end of the at the end of the day on the scoreboard. Well, and to that point, to the idea of winning, and this this actually brings me back to the book that motivated the idea of volleyball coaching wizards. Was there was an interview with a guy who, who was one of the these traders in this market wizards book book that I, I talked about in our kind of episode zero. Um, his, his kind of famous quote or paraphrase anyway is that you get what you want out of the markets. Meaning you know, if, if you're in it to make money then okay you know, you'll be working toward making money but if you're in it to have stories to tell your friends you know, either to commiserate or to puff yourself up then you're, you're going to be doing different things than necessarily the, the things that you maybe you do if you were strictly in it to increase the value of your retirement account. Mm -hmm. um, and I think as players and I'm sure as coaches as well, there's probably the element of, okay, for some players winning is what matters. The, you know, that the scoreboard is, is the be all and end all of, you know, their experience for others. What they consider winning isn't necessarily scoreboard related. Um, <laughs> And I think that's, that's something that you, you definitely see variation on at, at the different levels of the sport and perhaps between the genders to a greater or lesser degree, you know, somewhere along the way. As, mm -hmm. you know, 
for some, it, maybe it's the social side of things. You know, it's being part of a team. So it's not necessarily, you know, winning the championship, but it's being part of the team. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah, and so, yeah. You want to talk about Kobe Bryant. Okay. What does Kobe say? Kobe Bryant's famous thing was um, uh, friends come and go, but banners last forever. All right. So he just he just said what he's after. Yeah. He doesn't care about relationships. He only cares about winning or losing. Right. And I'd be willing to bet that for most female volleyball players that have coached over the years, it's more the relationships afterwards. Doesn't say it's all of them because I've I've known some really really competitive players, yeah. But, but when they look back, it tends to be the relationships they had with their teammates <laughs> than it was about the wins and losses. It's it's always the thing that you remember the most. It's not mm -hmm. uh, you remember the relationships much more strongly than the victories because um, it's a Phil Jackson stroke Tex Winter quote that uh, you're only successful in the moment that you have success. Right. After that, you are just, uh, um, you're just normal with one extra medal in your cabinet or a trophy on, on your wall. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't change anything, but the, uh, the victories, well, not the victories, but the whole process is a shared experience you have with a group of people and um, the shared experiences are things that uh, that help a lot in performance um, was the whole objective of the famous uh, Doug Beal USA volleyball outward bound uh, situation um, or experiment maybe um, yeah and these are shared the shared experiences are other things that are memorable, right? Things that stay. Right, and and I happen to be in the in, in, at an anniversary point in terms of my own coaching, where a couple of years ago, it was the Exeter women making it to the semifinals of the UK University Championships. And yes, to, I saw. And, and that will be, <laughs> and that will be something that. You know, I, I will be really proud of that team for a long time, even though we didn't actually win anything. We didn't win a league championship. Uh, we were tied, but we came in second on the tie break. We didn't win the national championship, but we did as well as we could have possibly done. We didn't win the, the regional club championship. We didn't win a cup competition. So, you know, we, at the end of the day, we didn't have any banners to hang on the wall, but it was a great experience, I think, for everybody. Um, and I will remember that even more than, you know, all the, all the matches that we won that season or the ones that we lost. Um, yeah. we're, we're running short on time. Uh, any final comments? Always try to bring it back to the uh, original quote. Um, and I think... This is a, it's a really important part of uh, learning to be a coach, of uh, improving as a coach is, is making that step that Peggy talks about in understanding that firstly, players are different from you and secondly, the players are different from each other and that your role and responsibility as the coach is to, is to find the, the individual uh, triggers 
I think that's maybe has a negative connotation these days, but the net, the individual triggers that motivate people that um, provide the, the spark to get them uh, to do the things that they need to do. I almost said to get them to do the things you want them to do, but I'm not like that anymore. <laughs> All right. We're up at there. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. For show notes and more, visit volleyballcoachingwizards.com backslash podcast. Got an idea for a future episode or want to ask a question? Send an email to podcast at volleyballcoachingwizards.com. 